Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's truly a joy to sing Christmas carols. It's, it's a shame we have so few weeks to do it, um, at least traditionally. But it is such a joy to sing them, and it's such a joy to be here with the body of Christ, studying the Word of God. And this week, um, the chunk for this week's sermon is larger than usual. It's 16 verses, um, really half the chapter. So we're going to read that, and then we're going to see what the Lord has for us in it. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll the younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Lord God, as we look at this passage, Lord, um, just pray that you would reveal for us your heart, your heart for the, the poor, the afflicted, um, those without, those who are alone, those who are powerless, that your church would reflect your heart we would care for those among us, Lord God. Um, have your way with us. Bear much fruit in your word. Give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as we begin this section of Timothy, this section starting in, in chapter 5, verse 1, really going all the way through chapter 6, verse um, 2, really focuses on the, the theme of honor. Really, that's what sums up the next chapter and a third, is this notion of honor. We see it first in the way that Timothy is to treat his elders, those who are older than him. And then we see it in verse 3, to honor widows. And then next week, or perhaps the week after, um, relating to elders, in verse 17, are worthy of double honor. So honor widows, double honor goes to elders. And then in, in chapter 6, verse 1, um, slaves are regarded on masters as worthy of all honors. We've got honor, double honor, all honor. 
this, this notion of, of rightly relating to people, giving honor where honor is due, um, really is what governs this whole section. Um, that notion of honor, time, it, it, it means value or price. And showing something that equates to that. It can also mean compensation equivalent. I think when it gets to widows, we'll see that honor means, in many senses, material provision. It can also just mean pay. Um, the worth of something. Showing the worth. Treating something as worth what it is worth is this notion of honor. And so our title for this morning's message is Showing Honor and Love to the Household of God. Showing Honor and Love the household of God. And that's really what we're looking at is inter-household relationships. This week we'll look at some. Our next time we're back in First Timothy, we'll look at relating to our leaders and elders. And that's really the, the overarching theme, showing honor and love to the household of God. We'll, we'll see this in three points. First, from verses 1 to 2, honoring church family relationships. Honoring church family relationships. Um, Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And, and the first point I want you to see here is that in the church, we relate to different people differently, but always as family. In the church, we relate to different people differently, but always as family family. And I think both of those blanks are important. On the one hand, we don't treat everyone the same. There isn't a sort of one-size-fits-all application. Now, we are to treat everyone with love. We are to treat everyone with respect. But the way that we demonstrate that is going to differ in relationship to relationship. And it's important to get that. It's important to understand who am I relating to. Am I relating to someone who is older than me? Am I relating to someone who is younger than me? Am I relating to someone of the same gender or the opposite? And different um, applications of love and respect would be appropriate in those different relationships. Um, so in the church, we relate to people differently, but always as family. And this notion of family, again, governs this. I mean, isn't this wonderful? Older men as fathers. Older women as mothers. Younger men as brothers. Your woman is sisters in all purity. I mean, these are family categories. And remember, Paul has already been using them in this letter. Um, if you turn back to chapter 3, 1 Timothy, um, we, we first saw this theme in, in the qualifications for an elder. Verses 4 to 5 of chapter 3. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church. And the assumption there being these elders, precisely because they've done an excellent job of managing their households, are fit to manage the household of God, which is the very theme Paul picks up in 3, 14, and 15. Giving us the theme for the letter, why did he write? I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul has repeatedly been using a family metaphor for the church body. And it should affect how we view and relate to each other. Um, we're family. We're to treat each other as family. And, and this really becomes of importance whenever there's conflict. It's, it's, it's easy to do this when everything's getting along fine, but we've got to remember whenever there's friction, whenever there's offense, whenever there's conflict, we are family. 
We are the body of Christ. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 3. Jesus makes this point emphatically. Twice in Mark. And we're to see that. Mark chapter 3. And Jesus is meeting with some of the disciples, some of his followers, and a delegation comes to him. And they knock on the door, and it says in verse 31 to 35, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, we're my mother and my brothers. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That, that is a startling uh, teaching from Jesus. Especially in, in the culture of that day, family relationships were even more tightly held onto. And what Jesus is saying here is the church family relationships supersede, take priority even over familial relationships biological family relationships. So what Jesus is saying is he, he really recognizes the validity of a claim to family, not first and foremost from, from those who share the same genetic origin, but from those who are in God's family. And that is a startling thing that he does. Um, and, and so we understand the priority of being part of a family, of God's family in the church. It actually supersedes familial relationships. Elsewhere, Jesus says... Being loyal to him may actually separate families, may put a mother against a daughter, a father against a son. Because this relationship to God, being part of his family, takes the priority. Turn over to, to Mark 10. And because of that, because our relationship in the body of Christ may cost us earthly relationships, Jesus has a wonderful promise. Mark chapter 10. Verse 28 to 30, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now notice, Jesus does not just promise a reward that comes in eternal life. There is a reward coming for those who their faithfulness to God will cost them earthly relationships. He promises an abundance of relationships that equal those that are lost in this life. So how is it that for someone who their faith in Christ has cost them family relationships, how is it then that those get replaced? Well, it's in the church. In the church... You have many brothers and sisters, many mothers and fathers, many children. In the church, you find these relationships replaced. This is, this is a wonderful truth. Um, I've talked to people who are lonely. I've talked to people who are struggling. Their faith has isolated them. And the great encouragement I try to give them is in the church, those relationships get replaced abundantly. And so this is not just a metaphor. This isn't just a way of speaking, but this is a deep truth. That in the church, we relate to different people differently, but always as family. You don't need to turn there, but in 
Romans 16, 13. Just listen to this little brief note Paul makes about Rufus. Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Isn't that just beautiful? That Paul's relationships are so tight and so close in the church that he, Rufus' mom, she was a mother to me. Paul talks about Trimothy, his true child in the faith. These church relationships, these body relationships are meant to be tight and binding. We are members of one another. And that needs to govern our interaction with each other. And it's all too easy when we get heated, when there's friction, to forget that. Um, to forget that we're family. I mean, family can work through disagreements, but family works through disagreements differently than, say, a business works through disagreements. And it's important to keep that in mind, that, that we relate and honor these family relationships. The other thing I want to point out here is, um, point B, the honor and deference is to be given to, quote, gray hair, which is just a biblical way of talking about old age, maturity. Let's listen to Leviticus. Um, listen to Leviticus chapter 19. It's a great verse um, speaking to this truth. It's all through the Bible. Leviticus 19 verse 32 says you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man you shall fear the Lord you shall fear God I am the Lord so you are to stand up literally stand in the presence of gray hair you shall give honor to an old man the Bible recognizes honor being given to age and, and really it's only recently in our culture that this has been flip-flopped um, in many parts of the world today, older age is honored, revered. Sadly, with the technological advances that we have and with the way they keep coming, there's been a trend in our culture of old age being viewed sort of as obsolete. I mean, after all, that person may not even know what Facebook is. And, right, they may not know how to text. So what use could they be? And we've got we've to fight against that. We've got to fight against that. We've got a culture that's obsessed with youth, with remaining youthful, appearing youthful. Not, no one wants to look old. No one wants to look over the hill. And yet, biblically, you're to honor the aged. Proverbs says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is the reward of a righteous life. And Paul reminds Timothy that, that he's to honor age. And this sort of balances out what we saw two weeks ago where Paul says, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. But lest Timothy then thinks that means that he's the big shot, Timothy, you don't talk sharply to an old man. You, you speak to him as a father. You don't, you don't talk sharply, sharply to an older woman. You, you address her as a mother. So yes, on the one hand, Timothy's youth does not disqualify him from the ministry that he's in. And that by no means negates the biblical principle of showing honor and deference to gray hair. So that's the first level of relationships, is, is family relationships, treating younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters with all purity, older men as fathers, older women as mothers. Next, we get to the point of honoring our parents and grandparents. Honoring our parents and honoring our grandparents. And at this point, um, I'm going to sort of address the text slightly out of order. It's a long passage, and Paul weaves his thought in and out. And I've sort of mined out um, similar chunks to arrange it in, I think, 
um, as we're going to look at this big of a chunk, um, arrange the topics together. So he addresses this notion of honoring parents three times. And so I've sort of pulled out those three. The, the verse numbers are next to it. And then when we get down to dealing with widows, we'll deal with that all at once as well. So I um, hope this doesn't throw you for a loop, um, but just I think this should actually be an easier way to present the material. And so the first thing about honoring our parents and grandparents is learning to repay them with godliness and honor. Learning to repay them with godliness and honor. And, and we see that in verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And, and this is, an impo- again, another important principle. Um, and and I, I like the fact that it says to learn. That, that implies a couple things. It implies that this type of honor won't necessarily come naturally, won't necessarily come easily. It might take some work. It might take some practice. It might stretch us out of our comfort zones. And so we've got to learn. God wants us to learn to repay with honor those who cared for us, those who changed our diapers, those who put up with all of our teen years. To repay them with honor and to learn to do it. And this pleases God. Um, It's such an important principle that a little bit later, he makes this a a practical test for the faith. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, Command and teach these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's how important this is. How, How important is it that we show honor? to our parents and grandparents, so much so that if we fail to do it, we are giving very strong evidence that we're not believers. Very strong evidence that we're not believers. And and let me just talk about this verse for a minute, because I think sometimes it can be misused, and I've seen men who've had their consciences unnecessarily bound by it. Um, What is condemned here is not the failure to provide in and of itself, it's the failure to provide given that one is able to. And that's an important distinction, that the Christian church has been persecuted underground, thrown in prison. There's been famines in the land. Paul is not saying that if you're in jail for your faith and therefore unable to provide for your family, that you've somehow become worse than an unbeliever. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Literally, the concept, clearly from the context is this widow goes to her family and they, they shut her out. They tell her, we're too busy. We, we can't help you. That, that makes someone worse than an unbeliever. So, so please don't think that just because you've hit hard financial times that you have somehow sinked to the level of a heathen. It's not the case. And yet when I was in seminary, um, my brother-in-law, some guy came up to him and challenged him with this because they... They got pregnant again, and finances were going to be tight, and, and somebody actually had the audacity to suggest to him that it was, it was poor stewardship and a bad idea to have another child because he might become worse than an unbeliever. I, I respect my brother-in-law for keeping his cool when that happened. Um, and so it, we don't want to misuse this. Clearly the issue here is the ability to do something and the refusal to do it. A good example of that actually is, is found in, in Mark. You don't need to turn there. In between the two sections we looked at talking about the priority of family, Jesus rebukes the Pharisee because they came up with a nice little loophole. 
they came up with a nice little loophole that protected them from obeying the commandment to honor mother and father. In Mark 7, 9 to 13, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. See, what the Pharisees basically did is they would pledge all of their possessions to the temple or to God or to ministry or whatever. And then when mom and dad needed help, they'd say, sorry, I've dedicated my house to ministry. I can't t- take you in. I'm sorry. I've, I've promised all of my belongings to the temple. Um, you, you, I can't help you. I mean, they're, of course, still using their goods and belongings. They still retained possession of them. And so this became a nice little loophole, and, and Jesus is, is not a fan of this. Jesus rebukes them for it. Um, and so the, the notion here is you have the ability to help your extended family, and you fail to do it. I mean, maybe modern-day equivalencies might be, sorry, we can't help you. The money's tied up in the kids' college funds or something similar. I mean, there, there's a responsibility. If you are able in any way to provide for those who are destitute in your family and extended family, we need to do this, even at cost, even if it means not going on vacation, even if it means driving the older model car. If you're unable to, that's fine. But we also have ways to tie up money so that they're Corbin and can't be used. And I think we get the same response from Jesus that the Pharisees did. So it becomes a practical test of the faith. James makes this point emphatically in, in James 1.27. He says, Pure religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So according to James, the litmus test for true religion, true and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. How do you care for the helpless, the powerless, this, this duo of the orphan and the widow? And sometimes the Old Testament, the, the alien sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, are picked up over and over again in the Old Testament. And, and our relationship to those people, to those people who cannot repay us, to those people who are in our power and, and they can do nothing to us, what we do to them reveals so much about our heart. James says that that's really the test of religion. And Paul here says, look, to fail that test, you're worse than an unbeliever. So it's a high, high priority. You know, and there's some beautiful pictures of this in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, the whole story of Ruth is really about Boaz um, taking on Ruth, covering her, spreading his, spreading his garment over her, as it were, to provide a covering, to, re, to redeem her family line. I mean, that's this beautiful love story in the Old Testament. It's all about the kinsman redeemer the extended family member who comes in and provides and cares for. Um, This is not just an Old Testament theme, a New Testament theme. This is a Bible theme, the priority that family has for family. We don't let the fact that Jesus says that his family are those who do God's will somehow negate the responsibility of familial relationships. It, It does not. And thirdly, this is done to free the church from ministry at the 
end of this passage in verse 15, um, sorry, 16, actually. If any believing woman has relatives who are a widow, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And another important reason for this is so that the church can be free to minister to those who are truly all alone, truly without. And so it's important that we learn and are willing to learn. It'll take work. It'll stretch us. We will move out of our comfort zone. Um, and, and there's different ways we can do that. I just want to read a quote from Brian Chapel speaking about this passage. He says, Today, despite the cultural nets of Social Security, retirement benefits, and interests on investments, Christian children are still to care for their parents. If financial provision is unneeded, there is still the Christian obligation for hands-on, loving care. Nurses may be employed, but there must be more. And this care cannot be done by proxy. Love that. Cannot be done by proxy. Emotional neglect and abandonment is not an option. For such conduct is worse than unbeliever. The conduct of Christians in these areas should help unbelievers to see that God's household is indeed the church, the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I, th I think he, he nails it. He nails it. We should, we should exemplify. We should give the unbelieving world a model to look how these people honor their parents. Look how these people take care of each other. Well, moving on. Honoring true widows. Honoring true widows. And this really is the bulk of the passage. Um, the reason why I put true widows there is that's the phrase Paul employs. He employs it three times. In verse 3, again, true widows in verse 5, and then in verse 16. And what Paul's getting at is, is, in his mind, being a true widow is more than simply having a husband who's died. Um, the origin of the Greek word for widow is one who is all alone. And so that's what Paul's getting after. Who are those widows that the church should take on special care for? Um, that, that's what he's focusing in on. And what we'll see is that there's a threefold provision and protection for widows that Paul sees. And in our culture, we could even potentially add a fourth. The first safety net is immediate family. Family. And we've already seen that, that Paul wants the family of widows to care for widows. Um, the second, we'll see in a bit, is remarriage for younger widows. And then comes the widow's list. The widow's list. This is clearly a, a structured list with enrollment we see in verse 9. And that's what we're looking at is who qualifies, who's to be on the widow's list. Now, in our, in our context, we could probably add a fourth safety net, which is with Social Security, retirement, life insurance, and investments. Um, many widows are not financially destitute. The, the assumption of Paul's day was that if you were a widow and you didn't have family, then you had nothing. And so we could even add that fourth safety net. And, and because of that... And then because of the high qualifications that we'll see for the widow's list, not many churches that I know of have got a functioning widow's list like this. And it's not because we're not being unbiblical. It's just because those other safety nets are, are doing the job they're designed to do. They're catching and caring for those in our midst. But it still does not mean that there isn't much for us to learn. There is much for us to learn here. And so we're going to move forward looking at the qualifications of a true widow. Qualifications of a true widow. We see the first grouping of those in verses 5 to 6. She who is truly a widow, 
left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so firstly we see not self-indulgent, but prayerfully hoping in God. We've got a contrast, a put off and a put on here. Not this, but that. And so they're to be not self-indulgent, but prayerfully hoping in God. Um, taking that in that order, self-indulgent here means literally to indulge oneself beyond the bounds of propriety, to live luxuriously. And so the, the contrast is this. Either we are going to put our hope in money and the things of this world and run after them, or we are going to put our hope in the living God. And so what Paul's saying is, is a true widow is first and foremost, there's a material or situational requirement, which is being all alone, not having family to care for you. But then there becomes spiritual qualifications. And the first of which is this is not someone who loves the world, is running after the world, is, is um, you know, maybe a modern-day equivalent would be addicted to the shopping network or something, you know, just, just, just obsessed with the things of this world, but rather devoting themselves to prayer day and night, placing their hope in the living God. And here's where we start to see how, regardless of whether or not you yourself may one day be on the widow's list, what we're going to begin to see here is a, a picture of godly, aged maturity. What should older saints look like, be typified by? Well, the first thing is hope set firmly on God, prayers night and day. We, we get an example of this in the New Testament in Luke, Anna, the prophetess. Um, in Luke 2, 36-37, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband 77 years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. There's an example of someone who's, who's not running after the world, but is focused on God. Doing the ministry of prayer. So not self-indulgent, but hoping in God. And, and one thing to pick up on here is Paul says, the widow who is self-indulgent, and, and I think this would apply not just for widows, but for anyone. He says he's dead even while they live. Which is a striking statement. And he's getting at, again, the spiritual deadness, this notion of, what First John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, it's, it's kind of sad to see the exact opposite of the promise Jesus gives. Here is someone who, while living, is dead. And yet in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So this, this is a big contrast. You can be living and yet dead, or you can die and yet live you'll have a hard time doing both. You'll have a hard time doing both. And so we want to become people who as we age become less attached to this world, who as we age become less enthralled with money and possessions and luxury. We want to be people as we age who grow in our prayer life, grow in supplications, grow in single-minded focusedness on God and the kingdom to come. That that should mark mature age Second, to be on the widow's list, qualifications of a true widow in verse 9, over 60 years old, having been a faithful wife. 
Paul writes, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Now that phrase, wife of one husband, is the exact reverse of the qualification for an elder. An elder has to be, literally, a one-woman man. Here, she's a one-man woman. And again, it doesn't speak about polygamy, and it doesn't even speak about divorce and remarriage. It means fidelity, a faithful wife. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between the qualifications for elders and the qualification for the widow's list. There's a lot of similarity. Um, in elders, we see a picture of masculine maturity. And here, we're going to see a picture of feminine maturity in the church. And again, there's much for us to learn because of that. So, over 60, having been a faithful wife. That, that's the next qualification for the widow's list. Third, a history of good works and service to the saints. And we see this in verse 10. Having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Again, notice a similarity to the qualifications for elders. Elders must have a good reputation with outsiders. This widow has to have a reputation for good works. She has to have been a good mother, which I think would parallel a good father. She has to have been hospitable. She has to be a humble servant who's washed the feet of the saints, which is the lowest thing you can do, taking someone's dirty, nasty foot who's been walking around in the arid climate and cleaning it, takes great humility, servant-heartedness, minister to the afflicted, and then, in case he hasn't listed everything, she's given herself to every good work. And, and so, the, the standard is rather high. The standard is rather high. Um, which, which I think, before we go on, it sort of begs a few questions. If this is the standard, then surely that would mean that there's got to be many, many widows who would not qualify. Not in every sense. What about them? Is Paul suggesting they should be sort of cast out into the street? I mean, let's take a simple example. Imagine you're a widow. She's over 60, but she's a recent convert. And so today she loves Jesus. Today she's on fire and focused, but she does not have this history of good works. Well, I, I don't think that Paul is saying that such people should be cast out, left to themselves. What I think rather we'll see as we move forward is that the widow's list is something more than simple provisions. Something more than simple provisions. We notice that because Paul doesn't want younger widows being put on the list and then being taken off. Look, look, look a little further um, in verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows... For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. There seems to be some notion of commitment to the church, to this list, to service, and some notion of remaining single um, that is being taken on. The earliest church took this in the second century to sort of be the beginning of the sort of the nuns and the, uh, those types of orders. I don't know if that's necessarily the right application, but you start to see the notion of commitment and permanence attached here. But what I think is envisioned is a situation where a woman who's already doing ministry, she's already washing the feet of the saints, she's already caring for strangers, she's already humbly serving, devoting herself to prayer night and day. She's advanced to the age where remarriage is not a likely option, and the church says, you know what, you just keep doing that and we'll take care of you. You just keep doing that. You keep doing that ministry, and we'll take care of you. Um, 
That, that's sort of the picture that I envision. Jay Adams, in his commentary, says this. What does this mean? Why shouldn't they remarry and simply drop off the list later? In doing so, Paul says, they would break some special commitment to Christ that was established when they pledged faithfully not to remarry. What are verses 11 and 12 talking about? Well, it seems as if to be enrolled, one had to pledge not to remarry. She was thereafter to serve Christ in some special capacity in the church, even taking a pledge to do so. It speaks then of some order of widows that stood in a special relationship to Christ and his church. Whatever way in which one reads this passage, we must be prepared to advise those who are cared for by the church, not only of the qualifications, but also of the expectations involved in that commitment to the church. It is not simply a matter of applying for assistance. Christ's welfare program entails demonstrable responsibility exerted in the past and expected for the future. It is neither easy to enter nor did it carelessly throw money around. So what Paul's talking about here is some special commitment that, that goes above and beyond care. To put it simply, the church should be caring for its needy. Anyone, widow, married, young, old, new convert, old convert, if you're in need, if you're, if you're struggling, talk to us. Talk to the church. And we're not going to turn people away because you haven't been a Christian long enough and you haven't a history of works long enough. That's not what this is talking about. This is something above and beyond. What it is exactly, we don't fully know. Um, but clearly, it's something above and beyond. Which then takes us to Paul's instruction then for younger widows. Paul's instruction for younger widows. And there's a danger to be avoided and there's a instruction given. The danger to be avoided is the danger of distraction, sloth, and gossip. We see this in verses 11 to 13 first. He says, Refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And then in verse 15, he says, Some, sadly, have already strayed in this way after Satan. And, and the concept is this. On the one hand, these widows who are being freed up, so they have no financial concerns, so they can just keep ministering. The danger is if you free someone up financially like that who isn't doing this type of ministry, well, what will they fill their time with? Again, so this isn't, this isn't a slam at women in particular. This is just an issue of God did not make us to be idle. God did not make us to, to live and not work or do anything and have all of our needs taken care of because if that's the situation we find ourselves in, we will drift towards idleness and gossip and busybodiness. And Paul doesn't want that to happen. On top of that, it seems like these type of women, these younger widows, are the very people that the false teachers in Ephesus are preying upon. To turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul attacks, again, these false teachers who are present. Some of them are even elders in the church there. Um, and he says, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So it seems in part as though these women who who weren't giving themselves to ministry, who really were kind of more interested in getting remarried, and so all this free time that they've been given is not a blessing for them. It makes them a sitting duck for these false teachers. That's what Paul has in mind. And so he would encourage then the younger widows to remarry. Because marriage is good. Marriage is God's good gift. To remarry. And then to enjoy the things that come with marriage. To have children. To, to manage their households. Love their husbands. And in doing so, give the enemy no occasion for slander. Give the enemy no occasion for slander. So that's Paul's instruction for younger widows. Older widows who are left all alone, who meet the, the physical and material qualifications, in addition to having the spiritual qualifications, well, they can be set up in a special relationship with the church so that they can continue to do ministry. Paul would encourage younger widows to remarry. As we bring this passage to a close, I just want to bring out one point, because the widow's list was a huge issue in the first century. We, We saw a few weeks ago when we looked at deacons and how they were created, they really sprung up out of a quarrel in the early church over the treatment of widows. Within the culture where women weren't able to work um, the way that men were. And so to be a widow was to be destitute. And that's not as much the time we live in and we have other nets. And so not many people are actually getting all the way through these first additional nets to the point where they'd be on a widow's list. I hope we'd be prepared to do that if that were the case. But, but right now, in many churches and in our church, we don't, we don't have a list functioning like that. So what what then do we learn from this passage? What is there for us? Well, we've seen already the high standards that God has for what we should strive to be living like in our old age. But there's one other thing I do want to see that I think brings the gospel to bear, which is God's passionate heart for the widow and for the orphan. God's passionate heart for the widow and the orphan. It just, just goes through the Bible, that the widow and the orphan, the sojourner, have a special place in God's heart. And and what I want you to hear this morning, I'm going to read through some passages, and I'll give you the references. You can write them down. I'm just going to read through some passages to bring us to a close. That from cover to cover, God's heart is for the weak, for the powerless, for those who cannot do for themselves. They have a special place in his heart. Starting with Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father, that the days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. And then just a few chapters later, Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children become fatherless. Or this description of God in Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Or Psalm 68, 4 and 5, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him, 
father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Then think of Jesus' miracle in Luke 7. Jesus raised the widow's son. It says, He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near the gate of the town. Behold, a man had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Why? Because he's the living God, and the living God always has compassion on such people. He had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the briar. And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. I love this. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, the living God cares for the, for the weak and the powerless. And it's not just the widow and the orphan. It's anyone who's weak and powerless. Think of Abraham and his wife in their old age. God coming to them and giving them a child. Think of Hannah crying out for a child at the temple and God giving her Samuel. You think of all these examples from cover to cover of outcasts, weak people. And it doesn't stop there. Because Romans 5, 6-8 picks this theme up and brings it to the very heart of the gospel. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, this, the fact of the matter is, whereas horizontally, as we relate to each other, some of us are strong and some of us are weak. But in relationship to the living God, and in light of our sins, all of us are weak. All of us are powerless. And so from that contrast, you really see how this is the evidence of God's heart. Because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not only were we weak, but we were orphans. And so later in Romans 8, 14 to 17, he says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children with God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So this, the importance of the church caring for its weak and helpless, caring for the orphan and the widow, is simply the outworking of God's heart, which cares for the weak and the helpless. And all of us are the weak and the helpless, standing before God. All of us are the widow and the orphan standing before God. And God sent his own son to die for us. And not only does he forgive us, he adopts us into his family. And then he gives us each other as a family. So this comes around full circle. And this is why it's so important for us to live this out. The evidence that you are born again, that you have the spirit of God living in you, is that you're having these same passions. You're concerned for the helpless. You're concerned for the family of the church. And, that, and that's really, I think, the picture to grasp here is God's heart as a Savior, as a Redeemer for the poor and the helpless. And he would have us be the same for those amongst our midst as well. And, and none of us, for the living God, is strong, and none of us is mighty. And, and amen for that. 
There are, there are far too many who are too strong to be saved. There's no one who's too weak and too small to be saved. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just um, pray that you would, you would give us these hearts that are after your own heart, that we would cherish and prize and be zealous to guard and protect the widow, the orphan, those who are weak and powerless in our midst. We would live out your love, that we would be a model to the watching world, that we would give the adversary no, no occasion for slander. Lord God, help us to honor our parents. Help us to relate to each other as family first. Lord God, grow us in your image, for your glory and for our great good. In Jesus' name.